please take a Bible in hand. If you're using a Bible in the pew rack, you'll want to turn to page 876 this morning. We are going to read and consider Luke chapter 16, 19 through 31, the end of Luke chapter 16. It is uh, often titled the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We're continuing our Sunday morning summer series looking at uh, sections in Luke's gospel that we only find in Luke's gospel. Sections that are both stories and encounters of Jesus with sinners and parables that are only found here in the third gospel. Now, as we come to this parable, um, some have thought uh, two things. One, uh, that it's not a parable because of some of the details given and some the weightiness of what is given here. Uh, they have considered it not to be a parable and unique in a way. Am I doing something? Is that helping? I think that was it. Sorry. So that was one consideration when people come to this. They say, this, is, this seems like a different in some ways than, than many of the other parables. It must not be a parable. Jesus must be relating a true story. It's not the case. Um, we can go through and show why it is clearly a parable. Quite simply there in verse 19, um, Jesus in Luke's gospel introduces his parables with there was a, and then he begins to tell the story. Um, now, the other thing to clarify before uh, reading and hearing this passage is that this is a different Lazarus than the Lazarus in John's gospel. The friend of Jesus who Jesus raises from the dead in John chapter 11. This is a different Lazarus in, than we find there in John's gospel. You think we need to move to the handheld mic? All right, we will do so. J.C. Ryle, in speaking of this passage, said, and I quote, there are few more dreadful passages, perhaps, in the whole Bible than this. And he from whose lips it came, be it remembered, was one who delighted in mercy. This is a dreadful passage. Luke does want us to see the grace of God in this passage. But this is a passage that doesn't emphasize the tenderness of God's grace, but God's grace towards sinners and that he confronts their sin. Because you see, among the pantheon of man's idols, there are three substitutes for God that are particularly stubborn idols. Idols that are terribly difficult to dislodge and tear down. The self, sex, and money. And here, Jesus, in his graciousness towards sinners like you and I, is addressing money and its eternal consequences. Before we hear God's word read and preached, let us go to him in prayer and ask for his help this morning. Please join me in prayer again. 
Our Heavenly Father, it is to you that we look for help. It is to you that we need this morning. We need you to speak to us. So help us by your spirit to believe that here, this passage is your word for us. Inspired by your Holy Spirit to convict, to transform, to build up our faith in your son and to conform us to his image. So we ask that your word would do a mighty work in our hearts today. And in Jesus' name we ask, amen. Hear the word of God from Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that we, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Amen. And that ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. About two weeks ago, a zebra cobra was captured in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was someone's pet that had escaped. Now, a zebra cobra are deadly venomous snakes that can spit their deadly venom. Think about it. They can spit deadly venom. It's something out of nightmares for many of us. Turns out the snake actually escaped months ago but it made the news after it was recently sighted on someone's porch. Could you imagine how you would live if that happened in your neighborhood and you knew a zebra cobra could be slithering around your backyard? Some of you are on the next door neighbor app and if you don't know what that is, it's where neighbors can post messages about things going on in the community to their neighbors. 
And could you imagine on the next door neighbor nap, the pet owner, Heidi ho neighbors, I uh, just wanna let you know, my zebra cobra, Freddy, is missing. And if he's in the yard, he may spit at you and kill you. How would you live? You'd be on guard. You would live carefully and watchfully until it was captured. There is something that each of us handles every day that is potentially more dangerous than zebra, cobra, venom. It's money. Cobra venom is dangerous to your body. Money is potentially dangerous, deathly dangerous to your soul. I say it is potentially dangerous because it's not the possession of money or just the use of money that is dangerous, but the love of money that is the great danger to each of our souls. As Paul wrote to the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Some, he said, who once professed faith have wandered away from that faith in the pursuit of the love of money. This is the danger that Jesus is addressing in Luke chapter 16. The chapter begins with the parable of the dishonest manager in the first 12 verses. Now Jesus' explanation and application of the parable concludes with a statement that is familiar to many of you. In verse 13 of chapter 16, Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot serve God and money. Is a point that Jesus is hoping to teach and wanting to press to his audience. And who is in his audience? Well, once again in Luke's gospel, in his audience is the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the most prominent religious sect among the Jews, highly respected. But they are blind to this danger. And after the Pharisees heard Jesus say, you cannot serve God and money, Luke tells us something that many didn't recognize about the Pharisees. In verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 14, it says the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Jesus had pressed the button. Jesus had laid his finger on one of the Pharisees' besetting sins. He has been in his teachings showing them their self-righteousness and pride and now He's going after the affection of their heart, their love of money. They put up this religious front of respectability and faithfulness to God's law, but their hearts aren't serving God. Their hearts are in love with money. And Jesus is telling them, you cannot serve God in money. And we need to hear this too. Because part of our fallenness is that we often fall in love with the gifts instead of the giver. And in doing so, 
We forget eternity and we live for the here and now. We fall in love with the gifts instead of the giver, forgetting eternity, living for the here and now. So I want us to consider verses 19 through 31 under three headings. In verses 19 through 21, the wrong evaluation. Then in verses 23 through 25, the eternal consequences. And then in verses 27 through 31, the wrong idea. The wrong evaluation, the eternal consequences, and the wrong idea. We begin with the wrong evaluation. Which man has God's favor? If we were to restrict ourselves to verses 19 through 21 and not hearing the outcome of these men's lives in the parable, who would you say has God's favor? We must compare the lives of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, we're told three things about him. We're not given his name. We're told about his clothing, his lifestyle, and his home. What are we told about his clothing? Well, that he's, he's dressed in purple. Well, purple clothing was the clothing of royalty. It was expensive because it, it had to be uh, harvested from the certain shellfish to get the purple dye. And so this is expensive clothing. This is his outer garment. It's something for all to see. But then we're told about his, his undergarment. We're told that he has linen clothing. Linen clothing would have been the softest, finest material, and it would have been imported from Egypt. Oh, it's not just designer outerwear. This man has designer underwear. It's not just he's rented the tux to show off. He's also got the name brand on the tidy whities as well. For this man, only the softest imported underwear will do. What about his lifestyle? Well, we're told that he feasted sumptuously, and he did so every day. The everyday part is the part that should concern us. Feasting was a part of the devout Jew's life. That life was in a rhythm of work, worship, and feasting. And that there were feast days and feast weeks and times of great celebration. Weddings were feasts that lasted an entire week. Think about that. Having to fund a reception that lasts for a week. That's the type of feast that the Jews knew and celebrated. But this man spent all his days in feasting. Then we're told something about his residence, his home. Well, what about his home that we're told? It was so extravagant that it had its own gate. This wasn't common in his day. It was only for the wealthiest, the richest. Again, once again, for royalty and for those who were governmental leaders, possibly, would have gates on their home. It's a sign of the square footage of this man's home. Now, what about Lazarus? Well, Lazarus is poor, but he's not among the working poor. He's unable to work. Why is that? Well, it says that he was laid at the rich man's gate. He couldn't walk there himself. He couldn't crawl there himself. Others had to bring him. We don't know how long he's been in this condition, but he's been in this condition 
for quite some time because then we're told that he's covered in sores. And because he is in some sort of, of paralyzed condition, he's covered in ulcers, bed sores. And we're given the image that he is covered from head to toe in these sores. We're given a picture of his suffering. He's starving. He desires the scraps that he knows are falling from the rich man's table as he lays outside his gate. And don't think like doggy bags that get tucked back in the fridge and you forgot that you had leftovers. Don't think like we had an extra portion left over, but we're really not a, uh, a leftover family. We're not going to use this, so we just go ahead and throw it out or something like that. This was the, the scraps being like, after the meal, they would take some bread and use it as a napkin or a paper towel to clean their hands after the meal and then just throw it on the ground after the table. This is what he longed to eat. And then we are told that he is accompanied by dogs. Now, dog lovers, I hate to break it to you because so many of you, you read this story and you think, I knew it, man's best friend. Here they are, hero of the story. This man is suffering and there's these faithful canines coming to comfort him. Not the case. These are unclean scavenger mutts. Think more like a hyena. And they're coming, and they're licking him, not to comfort him and console him, but they're waiting for him to die so they might scavenge his own body. So if we pause right there, and we don't go any further in the parable, which man has God's favor? The Pharisees would have said the rich man because their theology was a theology of retribution, you get what you deserve. So therefore, wealth means that God is blessing you because you deserve it. Poverty means God is punishing you because you deserve it. See, their idea of favor was that God shows his favor to those who earned it, who have merited it. We're not given a comment on how this man obtained his wealth. He may have done so by righteous means. It may have been by inheritance. It may have been by industrious hard work or a combination of the two. That's not the point. It's not the point that he is unrighteous and he is to be judged because he is wealthy, but it's how he is using it. And the Pharisees, at this point, if we were, they were to pause, they would miss it. They would say, no, this man is right with God, obviously. Look at his bank account. They would believe that God rewards with earthly wealth and punishes with poverty and suffering. And so therefore, who is this rich man to interfere with the justice of God being poured out on Lazarus? That wouldn't be right. Oh, you can see the danger. There are times that wealth and riches are a mark of God's favor and blessing, but they're no sure mark. They're no certain mark. And there are times where poverty and suffering is a sign of God's displeasure, but it's no sure mark and certain mark. And Jesus wants us to see the opposite. He wants us to see the graceless religion of the Pharisees. 
that they have no need for grace. They have their love for money. And money itself props itself up as a God replacement. Is that when you have wealth, you have a certain level of self-sufficiency. You forget the giver of the wealth. And what do we see in this rich man? We see the shrinking of his soul. He truly believes that he is more valuable than Lazarus by comparing their lot in life. He believes that he is more important. That's a theme that runs through the whole parable. Did you pick up on it? That even when we get past these verses in 21, that when the rich man is in hell and he sees Abraham and then he sees Lazarus and he is thirsty, he thinks Lazarus can be his servant and touch his finger in the water and come touch the rich man's tongue and come serve him. He thinks even in his receiving his just punishment in hell, that Lazarus would be his servant. And then later he says, Abraham, would you send Lazarus to my brothers to warn them? No, this man's soul is shriveled. It's hard to recognize the roots of the love of money in our life. And so Jesus gives this very extreme picture to get our attention. Pressing home, not to judge by externals someone's future eternity. Reminding us that all will give account for what they've been given. And then in verses 22 to 25, we see the eternal consequences. Both men die. Is it appointed for every man to die? and then the judgment. And we're getting a window into this. Lazarus, carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Jesus is saying, that beggar had the same faith as Father Abraham. That beggar was trusting God for his righteousness. That beggar was looking for a kingdom not of this world. And so there he belongs at Abraham's side. The rich man, we're not told that he is carried by angels. We're told that he is buried. But his soul goes to Hades. Hades is a place of the dead. And here, particularly, it's tied with the concept of Gehenna, the place of torment. It is hell. And here at this point, what makes this parable so interesting is that Jesus gives some of the most important teachings that we have about the afterlife here in a parable. There are six of them that I want to identify for us this morning. First is that there is life after death for both the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not just a matter of a reward for eternity for those who are righteous and then a cessation of life for the wicked but that there is life after death for both. And then there are only two places that the dead will go. Here, Abraham's side, a picture of heaven, and Hades, a picture of hell. There is no in-between. There is no purgatory. There is no place for the rich man to go and make right what he did wrong in this life. And here, in the picture of Abraham tells him that there is a chasm between the two. There is a clear and unbridgeable gap between heaven and hell. That is the third thing 
that we learn about the afterlife in this parable. Then the fourth thing is that the judgment that comes to each in the afterlife is based on the individual's response to the revealed will of God and how they responded to God's will in this life. Whether that is God's will in general revelation or special revelation, that your judgment will be based on your response to the revealed will of God. The fifth thing, as we see here in this passage, is that there is no second chance of salvation after death. There are certain forms of universalism, universalism, the idea that in the end, all will be saved, that there will be an opportunity for those in hell to repent and to receive Christ, but that is not the case. And then the sixth thing we see in this passage, there is no end to the blessedness of heaven and there is no relief from the torment of hell. There is no relief. There is no one who can bring a cup of cold water to those who are in the torment of hell. There is no annihilation to where that one day the wicked will be burned up and will cease to be. No, their torment is forever. Daniel chapter 12 in the book of Revelation speaks of eternal torment for the unrighteous and the wicked. And we're given this image of fire. It is a it is a, is a picture, it is a figure of what hell would be like. It's a figure of speech in a sense. And the reason why we're given something like this is that there really is no clear human way to communicate the torment. And so we're given this picture of eternal fire that never ends, that never burns up. And why here? Why in wanting to address the love of money in the Pharisees, does Jesus bring it to this level, to this importance? Well, it's because among all the idols that can draw you away from God, the love of money is one that keeps you focused on the here and now and makes you numb to eternity. It keeps you focused on the things of this world, not considering what is to come. So why is the rich man condemned? He's not condemned for being wealthy. There are wealthy men of faith. Abraham himself, who Jesus brings into this parable as the father of faith, was a wealthy man. Then we also see in the, the gospel narratives that there was a man named Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy man who served the Lord in a very unique way. Now, Jesus is an itinerant minister and preacher. He didn't have his own home, and he didn't build his own estate. He didn't have his own savings and bank account. He relied on the support of others. And when it came time for his burial, he did not belong in a rich man's tomb, but he was placed in a rich man's tomb because of one of his disciples was wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea provided a tomb for Jesus. So he's not condemned for being wealthy. To be clear, he's condemned for what he did with his wealth. Think about it. As the rich man looks to Abraham's side across the gulf that cannot be passed, he recognizes 
Lazarus, and he knows him by name. He knew his name. He knew who this man was. He knew he was the man at his gate. This rich man knew that he had enough for his belly and for Lazarus' belly, but he didn't share it with him. What he did with his wealth was contrary to the law of God. Numerous places in the law commanded generosity, but behind the breaking of all those commands is the bigger problem, is that this rich man did not love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Instead, he loved his money. And that he did not love his neighbor as himself. He saw himself as more valuable than his neighbor. It is noteworthy that he is held accountable for the man at his gate. It wasn't every beggar across the globe that the rich man is condemned for. It's the one he knew by name. The one that was placed in his path. It's a very convicting parable, isn't it? But you shouldn't go to the far extreme and, and drive yourself mad and, and say that to be a Christian means that we have to, to eliminate all poverty and world hunger. No, the, the point is that to love your neighbor sacrificially and generosity, with generosity. That is the ethic that is laid down here. It was the beggar that he knew by name that the Lord was calling him account to. What he did with his wealth revealed his heart. Your attitude towards your money reveals much about the state of your soul. Are you a workaholic? Being a workaholic could be driven by several things, but the drive to constantly pursue more money at the expense of relationships, your own health, Serving others is often a symptom of placing your hope in money. Are you, st are you stingy? Do you avoid people in need? Of course, we are to be wise stewards and not carelessly give away what the Lord has entrusted to us. But if you're waiting for something or someone who is worthy of your generosity, you are showing that you don't understand grace. Are you a flashy spender? If you crave the attention and status that comes with showing off wealth, it means that your identity has been tied to what is fading and ultimately rotting. Your identity is tied to earthly treasures. Or are people more valuable to you than money? Do you believe that you cannot be more generous than God? Do you recognize that the money that you earned is itself a gift because the skills in which you used to work and earn that money were given to you by your creator? Do you seek out your neighbors in need instead of avoiding needy neighbors? And to be clear, we do not give our way into heaven. But when we receive heaven as a gift of grace, our hearts are transformed into generous hearts. And it will be evident in the way that we handle our money. It reminds me of a story I was recently reminded of, of my grandmother. I called her Momari. Momari had what she called her $20 ministry. 
Now, Momori grew up in the Depression. She grew up one of 13 kids. Her birthday was on Christmas Eve. And so she was used to not getting a lot of birthday presents. She was used to having to share everything. She was used to not having much. And then later in life, as she married, she didn't have much. But she had her $20 ministry. And what that was, was that she would always keep a $20 bill in her purse. And every day, she would pray and ask the Lord, say, Lord, show me someone who needs this. Show me someone who needs this more than I do. And so whether it was someone at church or someone at the grocery store or someone at the park, she would look for opportunities to go out of her way, to be generous. Because she truly believed what Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than receive. Her heart had been touched by heaven in such a way that it overflowed with generosity in this life and a loose holding on to the possessions that the Lord gave to her. Eternal consequences. That's not where the parable ends. In verses 27 through 31, there's a pivot in the parable. We see the wrong idea. The rich man recognizes that he's stuck in hell with no relief to come. But he knows that his brothers are on their way to joining him there. It's amazing that he has concern for them, but we can't give him too much credit. Because if it was a genuine concern, he would be concerned for all of the community, all of mankind. He would say, Father Abraham, send a herald to all of creation so that they would know that hell is real and that this is where they're headed. But no, he's concerned about his brothers, his family. And so what does he say? Send Lazarus. And Abraham replies, no, your brothers, they have Moses and the prophets. In the synagogue on Friday night before the Sabbath, they hear the teaching of the law they should know what the law says. But the rich man insists. He says, no, they will repent if someone goes to them from the dead. And Abraham says, no. If the Old Testament doesn't convince them, then nothing will. Again, J.C. Ryle says, the dead could tell us nothing more than the Bible contains if they rose from their graves to instruct us. Maybe he thinks that if he had been warned, he would have repented and changed his ways. But here's one of the major flaws in this rich man's scheme. Miracles themselves require interpretation and then faith. Lazarus could come back from the dead, and he could warn his five brothers, and his brothers would probably look around and say, we're clothed in purple and fine linen. We're going to believe this guy, and they would find another explanation and explain it away. The unbelieving heart will never have enough evidence. The hard-hearted atheist will never have enough evidence, especially when they reject what God has already revealed to them in creation and in his word. The unbelieving heart will always find reasons to justify unbelief. So even someone coming back from the dead will not convince them. What's interesting is that we do see that in Scripture. In 1 Samuel chapter 28, Saul, in his desperation, he hasn't heard a word from the Lord because the prophet Samuel has died. So Saul, the king of Israel, seeks out a witch, the witch of Endor. And he asks her to conjure up 
the prophet Samuel. And what happens? I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's the Bible. Samuel appears to him. And he rebukes Saul. And what does Saul do? He doesn't repent. He stays in his wicked way and ends in his own destruction. Then, in John chapter 11, when Jesus' friend Lazarus dies, and then Jesus calls him out of the tomb, what happens there? Well, you think all the Jews would come and bow and worship at Jesus' feet. Clear demonstration that he is the Messiah. But instead, they get angry. And the plot to kill Jesus grows because Lazarus has come back from the dead. And here Jesus, as gospel readers, we realize he's alluding to the unbelief at his own resurrection. Because what happens? Well, in Matthew's gospel, we learn that the soldiers who were guarding the tomb and they saw the empty tomb, they go and tell the religious leaders that Jesus is gone. And for a bribe, for money, the religious leaders convinced them to spread a lie that his disciples came and stole his body. What's Jesus' point? The Pharisees are rejecting Jesus because they've rejected his word. They rejected the word of Moses and the prophets that spoke of him. This rich man thinks that his brothers will change their ways apart from submitting to the word of God. But it is the word of God is the only thing that can transform their hearts and lives and lead them into repentance. Again, the point is not that we give our way into heaven. The point is that we need the word of God to sever our hearts from earthly attachments. We need the word of God to lift our eyes from looking at the ground beneath us into eternity. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here, this parable, we have a warning to the comfortable in this life. And each of us need to ask ourselves, Is my comfort based on my contentment in my God? Or is my comfort based in my earthly circumstances? Now, it's very helpful, and you're supposed to do this in most parables. You're supposed to say, who am I in this parable? And of course, no one wants to be the rich man. But if we're honest, we kind of don't want to be Lazarus either. Sure, we want to end up where Lazarus ends up, but we do not want to take the path that he took to get there. We don't want that road. And Jesus is pressing you and I. Would you prefer earthly treasure now or wait and suffer as you anticipate heavenly treasure later? Jesus wants you to have what Lazarus had. See, in all of Jesus' parables, he never names one of the characters he creates for the story, except for Lazarus. This is the only character he gives a name. His name 
therefore, is significant. It tells us something about who this man was. His name means God is my helper. God is my helper. This is how we are supposed to see the character and faith of this man. As he is starving, as he is suffering, Lazarus is suffering, trusting that the Lord is his helper. Under circumstances that we all would understand that if he decided just to curse God and die, he continued to trust God. His stomach is growling for the scraps that come from the table of the rich man, but his heart is beating, my God is enough. He is my helper. My God is enough. Again, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13, verses five and six, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, and here he quotes the great promise that runs throughout the Old Testament here now into the new. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man will do to me. Jesus says to each of you, you must choose between loving me and loving money. Will you choose Jesus and with Lazarus say, the Lord is my helper and he is enough. Amen.